Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey folks, the Other People Podcast is free and it is listener supported. Every episode is free. The app is free. Everything's free. So I count on the support of regular listeners to keep the show going. If you would like to make a contribution, you can do that at patreon.com slash other PPL pod. That's patreon.com slash other PPL pod. Throw a couple of bucks in the hat. You can also make a donation via PayPal. There's a PayPal link in the sidebar of the show's official website, otherppl.com. Thanks for listening. Let's get started with the show. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, with your head exploded, seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one Hey, everybody, how's it going? I'm Brad Listy. Welcome to the Other People Podcast. I'm sitting here in Los Angeles on another hot summer day. I've got Matthew Zapruder on the program today. I'm excited to have him here. I have long admired his work. I've been aware of Matthew for a number of years. You know how that happens when you're sort of online? It's usually online, or you're at the bookstore, or you're reading a literary magazine. Somebody's name just kind of keeps appearing here and there. You read their work. You wonder about them. Matthew falls into that category, and uh, we had a delightful conversation. It was great to finally get a chance to meet him. We spoke uh, over the transom and uh, it was great. So that's coming up in just a moment. He has a new book called Why Poetry. It is a work of nonfiction. It is a work of, uh, it's like one of those uh, hybrid works. It's like a cultural critique slash argument slash memoir. Do you know what I'm saying? It's like a braided piece of literature and very well done. Why Poetry by Matthew Zapruder. That's available now from Echo. So I, uh, I could tell you about my week, but if I tried to do that and I actually did it justice, I feel like it would deplete you so savagely. (laughs) You would just kind of fold in on yourself. Be like letting the air out of your heart. Just an up and down week. Lots of, uh, a lot of stuff is going on. So I'll give you the compressed version. My wife was out of town all week. She was up uh, in Minnesota visiting her father who was ailing. He is in poor health and she was up there visiting her family. So I was home uh, working and had the kids and my mom was helping 
And you know how, uh, for those of you who have children, you know, like when one of the parents is out of town and you've got the kids, it's just, it adds a layer of chaos and then you throw work into the mix. It was a busy and up and down week at work. And then, uh, next week, uh, actually when this show, uh, debuts, when it hits the, uh, airwaves, uh, what is it going to be? Let me check my calendar, make sure I have my head straight. So this will go live on uh, Wednesday, the 9th, which is my 10th wedding anniversary. I was supposed to be in Ireland today, but uh, my wife and I made the very difficult decision to cancel our trip in light of her father's health, in light of the fact that she was out of town. We didn't want to leave our kids uh, with my folks for another week. You know, it's all these different complicated uh, calculations that you have to make, but we sort of hemmed and hawed about it and we agonized over it. And then finally on, uh, I believe it was Thursday, we just decided to pull the plug. And this was particularly traumatic for me because I planned the trip. And there, if there, this might be something that you guys don't know about me. I'm actually very skilled at travel planning. It's one of my uh, like peripheral uh, abilities. Like I, I'm actually very good at planning a vacation getting everything organized, getting ducks in a row, figuring out where to go, making it seamless. I love that. So, you know, having uh, been married for 10 years, I wanted to do a nice trip. I I planned all of this back in January. Uh, It involved points. It involved miles. It involved uh, stitching together odd combinations of points and miles and cash and pleading with American Airlines representatives. I had business class tickets to Ireland for my wife and I. I had us booked at a castle. We were going to stay at a castle. We had a car. We had, uh, you know, it was going to be a great trip. But uh, it is no longer. And it's the right decision. It was the right move. I feel good about the fact that we canceled it. So I don't want to be unclear about that. In light of her father's health, in light of uh, our child care responsibilities as parents, it just wasn't the right timing, unfortunately. These things happen. But uh, for anyone who has ever tried to plan travel using miles and points and cash and stitching it all together, you know how cumbersome that can be when you're doing this stuff over the phone. And so to pull the thread on the trip and to watch it all fall to pieces was uh, particularly traumatic. So in order to cancel, in order, uh, in order to get all of my miles back, get everything back, like recovered, or at least as much as possible, I had to spend an hour and 20 minutes on the phone with American Airlines. It's never easy, this stuff. Just all fell to pieces. What do you call those sand sculptures? Mandala? Is it mandala? Mandala? taking a leaf blower to a mandala. That's what it felt like. We were going to be in Dublin. We were going to be in Cork. We were going to be frolicking in the green hills of Ireland. The Ring of Fire. Right? Isn't that what it's called? We were going to drive through the lush green countryside on the wrong side of the road. We're going to drink beer. We're going to sleep take Ambien (sighs) another time and the problem is that now that we've canceled this trip I got these tickets but you got to use them 
by January. You have like one year, I guess. And I book this stuff in January. So who wants to go to Ireland in the winter? It's not the same. Those hills aren't green the way they're green now. Do you know what I'm saying? I want the green hills. Plus, it's just tough, like leaving your... When, I have, when you have young kids, my, my, my parents were going to do it because it's our 10th anniversary, but I felt bad even then. It's a lot of work. So I'm getting some text messages from my wife as we speak. Our daughter is... <laughs> Our daughter is staring at me like a stalker. See, my wife just got home after being gone for a week, so our kids are especially uh, needy. She is staring at me like a stalker. She has to have personal time with me today or else she will explode. She has been crazy, super needy, so on and so forth. So uh, that's what's been going on in my life. I got home last night, uh, Friday night after work, and it's like one of those nights where I was like, I really just want a bottle of wine. I want to drink from the bottle. I did not do that, but I did enjoy uh, a couple of glasses of wine and uh, just trying to unwind. Life comes at you. There's a lot going on. Like in certain periods, I guess the, it's the way life works. There's different rhythms. Some days, uh, some periods are slower. There's not much going on. And then suddenly, you know, it feels like it's all happening at once. That's what this past week was like. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. My guest today is Matthew Zapruder. His new book is called Why Poetry. It's available now from Echo. It's a terrific book. I'm very pleased to have him here on the Other People podcast. Here he is, ladies and gentlemen. This is Matthew Zapruder. I mean, I first lived in San Francisco in the early 90s, and I did move there with no money at all and lived in a tiny, crappy apartment and was surrounded by people like that. And it was a different, it, it was that kind of a place back in the, back in that time. And then, uh, you know, as these different cycles of internet booms have gone through, it's gradually become, you know, more Manhattanized as 
as many people have said. So yeah, so it's like a kind of it's but I don't I don't want to make it sound like it's, you know, like it's terrible over there or anything. It's still it's still pretty awesome. City Lights is still there. Right. You know, a lot of bookstores, a lot of great people, people making music and art, but yeah, you know, if you if you really want to live like none of my graduate students live in San Francisco, I don't think or hardly any. Um they mostly live in the East Bay or something like that. So I got to ask you, I, I'm sure you've been asked this many times before, but are you uh, related at all to the guy who shot the Zapruder film? Is it Abraham Zapruder? Is that his name? Yeah, I try not to use the word shot, but yeah, um, the uh, <laughs> film. Right. Uh, film. Yeah, 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 we don't want any confusion. Yeah, I, I am. That was my grandfather. And in fact, uh, my sister just wrote a book, uh, published a book recently, um, last fall about the film, the history of the film and my grandfather and everything. So that's sort of the definitive history of it has a lot of great information. If that, if you're interested, wait a minute, I'm, I'm in shock. I, I expected you to say no and not at all. Like it's just like, you know, the same <laughs> last name that was your grandfather. Indeed. Wow. So he showed up that day, just had his like super eight or whatever and shot that film. It's probably one of the most famous films in, in world history. It is. Uh, yeah, he had a dress again. I mean, this information is covered with in far more detail and with uh, total accuracy in my sister's book, which is called 26 Seconds. But but yeah, he had a dress making shop basically around the corner from Dealey Plaza and he loved the president. And like everybody, so many other people in Dallas, he went out to see the see the motorcade wow. and he filmed it. And did you talk? I mean, did you have conversations with him about this when you were a kid? Not my grandfather, my grandfather died when I was two. Uh-oh. So I didn't really he was a remarkable guy. I mean, he came from, uh, he was born in, in, in the pale of in settlement in Russia, you know, no, no education came over, made a life for himself, was a brilliant guy. He was one of those guys who could pick up any instrument and play it. That I do remember from even being a little kid, you know, he's you know, kind of like just super gifted mechanically, really funny, you know, just like great, great dude. But yeah, he died when I was, when I was very, very little. Did you get, and I mean, I don't mean to overlap with your sister's book too much, but it is. I mean, now that now that I know that this was your actual grandfather, I have a million questions. Like, did you ever hear stories from your parents about how this, uh, did it have an Like, what kind of impact did it have on him to be the guy who shot that film? And then I'm imagining, uh, what, he had, I guess he handed it over to the FBI. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, that's it. That's the, the first thing he did. Yeah, I mean, it's the, like, I mean, the story's fascinating. And like I said, I mean, I'm not trying to, you know, I mean, I'm I, I'm not trying to change the subject, but I just like don't. It, to be honest, like I don't. I know like one percent of what my sister knows about this. So okay. if people are really interested, they should read the book, and it's a great book and fascinating. And uh, but yes, yes, he. It, 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 I'll just say that it completely traumatized him. Um, it was it was a, it was horrible. It was horrible. And you can you can imagine just ima- imagine for a second what that would be like. Yeah, know? that's crazy. Well, so. And now, but yeah, but I recommend people check out the book. You should read the book if you're interested. It's super. It's, it's great. It's beautifully written. And my sister is my younger sister. I have a younger sister and a younger brother who are twins, and they're both. You know, my sister's a writer, and my brother's a composer. He's um he's he's a he's a musician and composer, uh, getting his DMA, which is basically like a PhD in music composition, down at UT Austin right now. Oh wow! So I mean, I can see where like the apple doesn't fall that far from the tree. Like you're all gifted artists in, in your way. Yeah, well, I mean, we we pursued that. I think I didn't grow up. My father was a tax lawyer, um, great, amazing guy, and played you know played guitar and loved art. And my mother worked and continues to work in the Smithsonian. So there was kind of like art in our lives growing up. But we grew up, you know, in a pretty uh, I don't want to say conventional, but you know, 
upper middle class suburban house outside of Washington, D.C. And it wasn't, you know, we were not like uh, kind of trained to be artists or artistic people, particularly. I mean, I wouldn't say it was discouraged, but we were, you know, we were my our parents were professional people and we were surrounded by politics and and law and business growing up. And that was our that was our world. Um, so I never had any thoughts or intention of really being an artist. Yeah, let's start. Let's start there. What town outside of D.C. were you raised in? This is like suburban D.C. Chevy Chase. Yeah, Chevy Chase, Maryland. So I was born in D.C. Um, and uh, but then when we were when I was six or so, we moved to Chevy Chase before it was kind of Chevy Chase. You know, it was it was kind of like this little Catholic neighborhood that was right outside D.C. and um, was. Yeah, it, it just wasn't the kind of place it is now. And so, yeah, so and I went to public school there and and at Bethesda Chevy Chase High School, big public high school and grew up there. And it was, you know, it was like the suburbs. But D.C. was right there, which was super cool. And then when I got older, there was all this amazing music there, like hardcore music. And really, you know, I got into really into all that that world like later on in my in my in my life and played in bands and stuff. And so there was a kind of like artistic undercurrent in D.C. counterculture. I can imagine that as like a reaction to like the political milieu or uh, it seems like a natural place for that sort of stuff to be happening. Are you, do you know about that DC hardcore scene? What is it like? Fug- records and- is it Fugazi? Like I'm very, I yeah, have that stuff. Yeah. Fugazi. So yeah, but it, it started before that, you know, with Ian McKay was in, you know, was in a band called minor threat and they started this label called discord records. That's, you know, that's kind of this legendary DC label that continues to this day. And it's like, you know, straight edge, hardcore music, a very political, um, and yeah, and that had a big influence on us when we got older. We thought that was like the coolest thing in the world, and it kind of was actually. So, <laughs> and uh, and yeah, provided a model for like artistic engagement, like really non-commercial, like very, very had a lot of integrity, and also a lot about community. That's a big part about Discord Records, a lot about community. So it's not about like doing drugs together or partying together. It's about you know going to demonstrations and marches together or like making, you know, like social justice. Right. Yeah. Well, that's no, interesting. You allude to some of this in your book, but it's like the intersection of art and politics and whether or not like that, that's, it's been a question in, in the arts for a long time. It's like how much of an impact can a poem have? Can a song have, can a book have on the, um, uh, you know, the politics of the time and, uh, like where, where have you landed on that? Yeah. Or where do you, where do you find yourself Uh, currently, especially in the times that we live in now? Well, and I know that, you know, from listening to your show, I know that that's like a, you know, you're obviously, you're not a big Trump fan, I gather. Not huge, not huge, no. You're top. (laughs) No, I mean, like all of us, I mean, you know, we're freaking out. I I, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I used to, it's funny, I mean, I write about this in the book. I mean, I kind of, you know, once I started being an artist myself, I think I had a kind of reaction against politics and art. I thought it was like sort of preaching to the converted or like too obvious or something. But there was another part of me that was always has always been super engaged with politics and the world and, and the desire to change things. And, you know, just to be not that I myself, not that I call myself an activist or anything too, too, too lazy. <laughs> but but like but I mean the 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 you know but I am interested in those ideas and committed to them and so I so I, I like I was kind of I sort of suppressed that a little bit I pushed that away but then you know the more I wrote 
poems, the more those things just sort of work their way into my poems and into my thinking about poems. And I think it's just natural that what you care about is going to be part of what you write about. It's like, you know, just, just like anything else. So, so I don't know, but like, as far as whether it can change things, I, I sort of, I guess, I mean, I write about this a lot in the book. I think it has a lot to do with language and, and what's being done to language by our, by our, uh, current rulers and just generally the capitalist like monopoly and of, 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 you know, content, content streaming being poured into our brains like just i mean it's it's what they're doing the language is is horrifying and i think the writers have to push back um can we can we, can we slow, i want i want to slow down a little bit right there because you bring up an interesting point i mean i think when you talk about the current uh political leadership and what they're doing to language like this is something that uh in my reading um you know this is what a th- when you have like a an authoritarian leaning government in place like one of the things they want to try to do is they want to try to make language meaningless they want to try to make mm-hmm. uh, they want to try to create a language environment where there's there's no such thing as truth right i mean yeah like up is right. down and down is up and fake news and you know they just want to kind of sow confusion and uh that's what you mean um politically correct like yeah. that that sort yeah, of thing I, I, this is not my idea i mean it's you know if you could read I mean, you can go back and read Orwell, Politics in the English Language, you know, his classic essay about this same idea, or, or, you know, 1984 is obviously about this too, and um, it's just a truism of, of, of authoritarian, like you say, of authoritarian, the authoritarian impulse is to destroy language, because it, it has two, I mean, it has the effect of, first of all, of denying what we all know is true. Um, I mean, that's, you know, it's obvious, certain things are obvious, and then if, if, if but, but if language is starts to function in the opposite way that it's supposed to, you, you just, you start to just get confused. Right. And then secondly, just, it just disempowers people. Like if, you know, if you take away their language, take away their words and their speech, I mean, that's why it's always, it's always, um, you know, it's odd why when you look back at the history of authoritarian regimes, they'll often go after poets first, put them in prison first and persecute them first. And, you're always like, why are they doing that? I mean, who could be more harmless than a poet <laughs> sitting in their room, like scribbling away about the edge of a flower or something? But like, but it turns out that you know, poets kind of have this. You know, not to say that other writers don't have this. Of course, they do. I mean, but it, but like, poets are really, really interested in accuracy of language, and that was one of the things that bothered me too. About and then part of my impulse of writing this book is was I feel like there's this misapprehension that poets deliberately obscure language or they make it symbolic or they don't say what they mean. But that's not been my experience of reading the great poetry throughout history and across cultures. I think that poets are actually super accurate with language. And so I felt like that, that idea alone was, was enough to kind of get me started writing about poetry to try to explore that and clear it up. Yeah. I mean, you say at the beginning of the book, you know, it's the question, it's kind of a cliche, you know, people saying, I, I just don't get poetry. You know, you hear that a lot. And you set out to try to respond to that. Uh, do you feel you succeeded? Like, do you feel like you got to a place where you you now have a comeback? <laughs> you know, Brad, I'm going to put you on the spot. Do you feel like I succeeded <laughs> even a little bit? Yeah, I mean, you know, because I mean, it's not really. I mean, I'm I don't need to be convinced. I mean, I, I I just desperately want my book to be useful. You know, in some kind of way. I mean, that's why you know you know this. That's why you work and work and work. You're just trying to make something that's going to be. That's gonna that's gonna help or do something good in the world. I mean, so I so I, I 
I guess I just ask you that as an, or, or, you know, do you, did you have any different ideas when you, you know, checked it out? Well, I mean, I think I'm on board, you know, like I love poetry and I've often read poetry as kind of a primer to writing prose. Like I find that it opens me up. It has like this kind of uh, loosening effect for me and it gets me into the mode mm-hmm. of, um, it gets me into a linguistic mode, I guess, uh, internally or something like it, it's, it's like the spark. Yeah. Uh, so I really love it. And I don't mind when a poem is difficult. You know, I'm sort of, I'm, I'm on board to begin with. So for, for me, like reading this book was more of uh, an elucidation of like maybe feelings that I already had, but didn't quite have words for, um, mm-hmm. as opposed to, um, an argument that convinced me, you know, I sort of was on your team, right. I think to begin with, but, um, let, let's make like, why don't you make a little bit of your argument for listeners um, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, like, like you were talking about earlier, like, you know, trying to make the counter argument that poets are actually very specific with language and that it's not something, um, it's, it's not a case where they're being, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, not, not sloppy assholes. Yeah. Right. <laughs> or, or like, you know, why, why is the, you know, why is there merit and, um, a rationale for spending time with a piece of work that might be more demanding than say like Shel yeah. Silverstein or you know, whatever, you know, like yeah. talk a little bit I about, like Shel I do too. Uh, the, 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 um, yeah, I guess, well, it's a kind of weird book. Cause I started out with this idea that I wanted to talk about these issues about, you know, what poetry is and why I basically started out thinking like, okay, people always say they don't understand poetry let's let's look into that let's see what's really going on there and can i is there a way to talk about it that might help directly you know just address someone who has that feeling in a way that's productive and interesting that was sort of my like impulse but it turned out i ended up writing a lot about my own experiences both as you know first as a reader of poetry and then really as a writer of poetry and then it became kind of like a larger also a larger argument for poetry and it's 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 distinct usefulness and so those those are kind of like those braiding those different uh different ideas or, or impulses became uh you know became the book and i i was just as an aside i mean it was super hard to write this book and i i can't i mean i always i read a lot of prose and i love prose and prose writers but i just i didn't really realize how hard it is until I did it myself, and now I'm like my my respect for prose writers is immense. It's just keeping it all organized is so hard. How do you guys do that? Yeah, well, I, I you know I'm I'm right there with you. It's a pain, and it's very difficult work. And I think like you know, to your credit, like when a book reads easily, uh, which yours does, like it goes down easy. That always is an indication to me that the writing was a pain in the ass. <laughs> oh my god, I made, I made so many mistakes. I mean, I would I would. I would work for months on something and then realize at the end, like, this is just so boring or like, I don't even agree with what I'm saying anymore, you know? Yeah. <laughs> or, or just like over and over trying to work the same couple of pages and then, and then, and then just realizing it just wasn't happening. And I mean, it just is unbelievable. Like how much work just goes by the wayside yes. when you, when you're writing prose, I just, and I know people say that, all the time. And I was like, Oh, you know, I, I wrote two novels and threw them away. And then the third was, you know, and you're like, it kind of, that just sort of people say that, but then now I know what that means. 
yeah, uh, a little bit or have some kind of inkling of it. But anyway, you asked me about the uh, uh, the the that basic idea, and I think what I really just start with is this idea that like about poetic language itself, and that I think that people have a really um, incorrect, basically, idea of how poets think of language, and and you know, and and I at some point I think in the book I just say, you know, in a, in a crude kind of way, people confuse poems and riddles. You know, a riddle's like a really complicated, deliberately mysterious way of saying something that's really simple. You know, what's well, red and white and black all over? You know, whatever. yeah. A penguin in a blender, <laughs> um, but but, uh, um, but you know, like like you know you or, or you know you're supposed to like be like oh of course that's what it is, but poems are kind of like the opposite in a in a very crude way. They're they're like there's something elusive or difficult to grasp or maybe even impossible to put in a language in a way, and you you're just trying to find it in the language, and so the language would never be deliberately more complicated than it had to be. Um, or, you know, it's just sometimes it ends up being difficult because things are difficult to talk about in life. Well, one of the um, things, one of the things I've found in, in this, like I think of a poet like Ashbery where it, like, if I read him without like, like making almost an effort to not try to figure it out, but just to read it, just let right. it kind of wash over me. Um, I find it much more enjoyable than I do oh, yeah. if I'm trying to sit there and nitpick it and decode it. And I think that's, that's the fun of it is that like you walk away and you're like, wow, that just worked on me in some weird way. And you try to figure that out as opposed to sitting there kind of uh, dissecting the text. Do you know what I'm saying? Well, it's a little bit, of course. You're, you're absolutely right. I mean, it's, it's a little bit of a stupid thing to say. Um, not that that usually stops me. But, um, but uh, reading Ashbury is a little bit like getting high. Yeah. Um, it's just, it's, it's, it's an experience that you have that changes your consciousness. And of course that the quote unquote experience you're having has to do with really thinking about the words on the page and what he's saying, but it's not about trying to find some meaning inside the poem or that the poem's pointing to. And that's where people go wrong, especially with a poet like Ashbery, where his, his poems are basically, they're phenomenological in a way. I mean, they're just like, you read them and you experience them. Um, and I, and I sort of think that it's like the same, the analogy sometimes I use if I'm trying to explain this is that, um, it's a little bit like when people finally figured out that paintings aren't about something else all the time, they are themselves an experience and whether or not they look like what the, what they're, what the painting, you know, they can look like a scene out that you might see outside your window or they can look like nothing, but you stand in front of a painting and you're having an experience with the painting and that looking at the painting is the experience. You don't look at paintings to see what, you know, a chair looks like. Right. And the same thing is really true about poems. It's like they, they're not primarily designed to communicate information, but what's sort of confusing about them is that they are communicating information. And so that's part of the experience you're having, if that makes sense. Um, God, I feel like I'm really, making this more confusing. Than it's- <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I, I get it. I get it. So what about like, let's talk about your history, uh, you know, as a poet and what, like, you know, you, you talk about this in the book, like being in, in high school in uh, Maryland and first coming into contact with poetry in any kind of serious way. Uh, and like, like how, uh, how serious of an impact did that have on you? I mean, did that really set you on your course or is that just you no. rec- recollecting and, no. and feeling like it was like the first time 
it ever, you know, you ever really were struck. It had no impact on me whatsoever. I mean, I, I, I mean, it did in a deep way that I didn't realize. But no, I mean, I read, you know, I, 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 that's what was kind of cool about writing the book for me is that I remembered these things that I, 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 I'd forgotten essentially that I'd had these experiences with poems when I was young, and I had just, you know, gone on to do other things and 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 live a kind of different life. And, you know, so they didn't, it wasn't like I wrote a poem when I was a kid or read a poem when I was a kid and I was like, that's it. I'm going to be a poet. That would, that would have seemed crazy to me. Like even through college, I didn't, you know, I, I didn't really know any poets or really very many artists. I mean, I think if I, if I had artistic ambitions at all, they were around playing music. So like most people my age. So, so, you know, so that's kind of where I was at, like so many other kids who were born in the late 60s or early 70s you know whatever i was like i was thinking about being in bands yeah well you're not the first you're not the first writer i've talked with who had some kind of musical experience and um i suppose as somebody who's a poet and um you know works in that field and thinks a lot about it like i'm, I'm interested to hear you talk about the intersection between music and poetry and like the um, the awarding of the Pulitzer or the uh, Nobel to Bob Dylan. And hmm. you, we were talking about Ashbery earlier and it was making me think of Stephen Malkmus and pavement who I think like heavily influenced by his, um, you know, phenomenological poetry. Like, I feel like there's a lot of that in their lyrics. And like, do you like, do you like, what are your feelings on uh, whether or not musical lyrics function as poetry, whether or not, you know, a, a rock band or whatever can, um, can have poetic merit, you know, there's always right. some, there's some debate about that. Like, where do you, where well, do you fall? There's a lot in what you just said. That's super interesting. Um, and the first thing I just want to say is that I worship the van pavement. Yeah, me too. Um, they, they are, <laughs> they are one of my favorite and probably also most influential, um, you know, artistic in, you know, experiences that I've had. And, and, and I still think they hold, I mean, I'm not sure that they ever recorded a bad song. Yeah. I mean, I've kind of, you know, I'm really, you know, like they, they, and just a brilliant, really underrated artist, I think. Um, and anyway, that, I just wanted to say that. Yeah. And Second I, of, can I, can I stop, yeah. can I stop and Absolutely. just, let's I, talk about pavement. Yeah. I want to rave about pavement because, you know, you spoke about, uh, Ashbury and how, you know, you come away from reading him and you feel like you got close to the knowing, but you didn't quite, and you're, it just sort of works on you in a weird way. And man, when I listen to Pavement, like one of the reasons why I think their music is so great and, and that Malcolmus is so great lyrically is that um, every time I go back to one of those songs, no matter how many hundreds of times I've heard it, it always feels a little new. And I always feel like, what's going on there? You know, like it, uh, there's a very similar effect, a brilliant effect. Oh. And it doesn't, like, I think about other uh, lyricists in rock music. And there aren't a ton of them. Uh, there aren't very many at all that, to me, match up. Well, so Malcolmus is a brilliant writer. And uh, he, I totally know what you mean. I mean, there are songs I've listened to, I mean, I even want to say thousands of times. There probably really are. Mm. Uh, and and, and I'll, sometimes I'll hear them, I'm like, I never heard that lyric before. Right. Like, what is that? Like, like I'm just like, that is so good. Like, what the, you know. And I think it's, I, but, you know, we can get to whether, you know, that's poetry or not and talk about that in a second. But I also just wanted to say that, you know, as a musician, Malcolmus's guitar playing and just generally that band 
you know, was a, was a kind of, uh, you know, lodestar for me. I think just the way that just the innovative way that he plays, but then also his sense of melody is just amazing sense of melody in a way. He's like Thurston more that way. Yeah. You know, secret, secret, you know, m- you know, melodists or, or Cobain, you know, it's basically writing like early Beatles songs. I mean, they're just, you know, in the end, these guys who are so seem so radical in their musical approaches are, are, are like a lot of the time they just, they have just this innate sense of melody that's that's undeniable, you know. Well, have you ever heard Have you ever heard Malcolm's interviewed? Like he doesn't do a ton of press, but like I heard him on uh, the WTF podcast, like you know, a couple of years ago or whatever, and he he just seems so relaxed, like and funny. I know. Like, oh I, know. I, I, I think I heard some interview where he had been living in Berlin with his wife, and yeah, kid, or I remember many kids he now is in Portland. I was just like, man, that dude has it figured out. It's like seems like a big. Portland Trailblazers fan. I'm like, I'm like, you somehow you got it all dialed in. I mean, probably, probably doesn't. It's probably like crying in his room right now. Or <laughs> I, I hope so. Yeah. For my, for my sake. I, I never met him. I never met him. But uh, but I I saw Pavement a lot of times uh, live, and they were they were extraordinary. I saw him in the last show of the Crooked Rain Crooked Rain tour. Oh wow. Uh, Amherst College which is where I did my undergraduate and then went back and did my grad work. Anyway, but you asked me about, um, about, about Dylan. I was thrilled when he won the Nobel prize. I was like, I'm a huge Dylan fan. I grew up with it. My dad, the first music I ever learned how to play was my dad teaching me Dylan songs when I was five years old, showing me how to finger pick. I mean, I, 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 I adore Dylan and I, and I didn't get why people were upset about it. I mean, it's not, and one thing, you know, it's it's a Nobel Prize in literature. You know, it's not the Nobel Prize in poetry. Right. And and I think songwriting is literature. I mean, there's absolutely no. I, I think it would be absurd to say it's not. Um, I don't understand why people, you know. And plus, I just love the way Dylan's conducted his career. You know. Yeah. It seems. But but you he's know, so as, he's so surly. He's so surly. You know, he's so yeah, and, he, and he's yeah. very 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 hard to get a hold of. Like he purposefully makes it almost impossible for anybody to, uh, you know, pin him down or get him to define himself or his, I mean, just nothing, you know, he's kind of like a ghost. I loved, I loved all these artists, you know, being like, I can't believe you didn't answer their letter immediately. It's like, why, what do, what do you care if he answered their letter? You know, like let him, let him not answer it. That's cool. You know, just like, just, it's fine. Right. <laughs> it's, it's a prize. He doesn't need to make that the biggest thing that ever happened to him. Well, and, and you know, there was a great, there yeah. was a great op-ed in the New York times by somebody. I'm, and I'm, I wish I could even paraphrase it poorly, but it, it was a, I think it was a woman. I, I can't remember, but somebody was making the argument that he owed them nothing. And yeah. basically I, I thought made a very convincing argument as to why he was reluctant to appear and why he was slow to respond. And it made a lot of sense to me. It was kind of about preserving his own identity and not, um, you know, there, there's something obvi- obviously elitist about the whole Nobel scene, you know, and they sort of, ex- oh they expected him to sort of like stand up, they expect people to sort of stand up and salute. And, uh, he wasn't, he wasn't ready to play that game, <laughs> at least not. But I on- think this can circle back to the question you asked about, you know, whether song lyrics can be poetry or whether, you know, that, that, and, and I mean, because there is a way that that award is, you know, they're sort of coming in after his whole, he's devoted his entire life to being an artist. And they're saying, okay, now we we're granting you the sort of the, the magical approval of the literary establishment or something. And he's like, I don't, I don't need that. Like, I don't need you to call what I do poetry to make what I do great art. Right. And I mean, I have no idea if he actually thought that, but that's sort of the way that I, and so 
And I think it's, I don't think that music lyrics are poetry. I mean, I guess they can be in isolated circumstances, but I don't think they're supposed to be that. I think they're written to be in the context of music and they take advantage of all that musical information we're getting. There's so much emotional information in music that, that the lyrics function, you know, great lyrics function in, uh, in response and connection and in a system with that. And, and poems are written in the background of, of silence. They're not, they're not written in the background of music. I mean, a long time ago they were when, when poets would, you know, play the lyre supposedly, I guess, and sing their poems, but that's thousands of years ago. And now, you know, poems are written, written into silence and against silence. And that's what makes them exciting and strange but that, but they have to do a lot more because they're because they're 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 in dialogue with silence and and song lyrics are just a different they have a different situation they're in but that that doesn't mean they're less worthy of praise or literary approval or something just saying something isn't a poem doesn't mean you're denigrating it right and that's why it always really bothers me a little bit when people are like talk about how rap is poetry or hip-hop is poetry i'm like I mean, strictly speaking, it's really actually not. But saying it's not isn't to denigrate it. It's like, I mean, hip-hop is unbelievable, and the writing in it might be better than most poetry. But it's just saying it's poetry is a little misleading because it's 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 got musical information usually in it. Right. And, you know, you talk about silence. It makes me think of what a rare commodity that is these days yes. uh, where people... I mean, I, whenever I get a chance to taste it, it's always sort of striking. And it's very rare. I mean, I live in the middle of a city, so... You, mm -hmm. It's just very hard to find. Like, do you spiritually? We're 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 our our lives are so noisy right now, and they're they're completely, you know, we're we're bombarded by information and text and 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 sort of a kind of informational noise that never stops. So it's very hard to stop it, you know, through our phones or our, just everything. And 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 I mean, this again, that's not an original idea, but um. But yeah, I feel completely oppressed and decimated by that, by that noise. Do you have to, sure. okay, so a couple of questions then, um, you know, as a, as a guy who uh, works in poetry, do you actively seek out silence? Like, do you have to go on retreats or like take your family out into the woods or do you go, like, do you actively go to find it? And then secondly, is there any way to like write against the noise? Do you know what I'm saying? Can you... Like, yeah. so can you, can you Kung Fu it, you know, where you yield to its force and somehow find like a way to respond to it and, and find the silence inside of it? Or do you know what I'm saying? Like, like, yeah. I, like, how do you, how do you function in this world of noise as a poet? And like, how do you get the work done in a way that, uh, you know, you feel like you're, you're operating at your highest level? Well, it's hard. I mean, I also, you know, I know you have young kids and, uh, I have, I have one young son and he's almost, he's going to be three in October and my wife and I have full-time jobs and live in the city and I have a lot of other obligations and so does she. And, um, so I can't take my family into the woods or go on a retreat or anything like that. I mean, I, you know, I have constant obligations, so I have to find that space in my life like so many other people do uh, like most people do um and but i've sort of as as the world has gotten noisier i would say over the past especially over the past decade 
Um, I think what's kind of interesting about poems is that they, it, it's instead of saying, oh, I have to make things silent so I can get to the poems, either re- reading them or writing them, it's they create a kind of silence that I can find through them. Mm. So in other words, when I start, all I have to do is shut off my computer and my phone, which is a lot, <laughs> but, and, and, but, but to do that and also just make sure that I don't have any immediate obligations that I'm neglecting, whether they're childcare or teaching or other things, and then pick up a book of poems. And suddenly I'm in that space. They draw me into the silence that I need. And then, and then the same thing is true for writing, like uh, writing the poems draws me into this place. And, you know, it's maybe a little, you know, I know that I heard you mention on an earlier podcast that you meditate every day. Yeah. Um, and I do that too much more sporadically, but I find it difficult to, um, do it both, both to get there and also to do it. And it makes me. I've often thought that the rituals around meditation or any kind of spiritual practice are as important as the practice itself because they themselves signal that you're moving into a different space yeah. in your life, one that you need. And so I think for me, poems function that way. You know, it's, it's the ritual of shutting off the computer, the ritual of shutting off the phone, the ritual of closing the door, and then the ritual of picking the book up. You know, these all, it's almost becomes like a kind of, uh, you know, like, like a, set of i don't want to say sacred acts that maybe like is a little the the ri- much, but... the ritual of silencing your child's screams through the baby monitor you know <laughs> <laughs> yes that's that that maybe just the ritual of like of of taking advantage of this when when your when your wife takes the child to the park maybe that's more more like it Whoa. but uh or goes to preschool or whatever yeah so. well i was you know you were making me think i mean i meditate Pretty much, I mean, pretty much every day in the morning. But the only way that I can do it and get to any kind of concentrated place, uh, and I say that almost like in scare quotes, because you know the actual what it actually looks like internally for me is a lot of chatter. It's very hard for me to, to settle, you know. But I, I listen to ocean waves. Like I have to have white noise in my ears in order to not hear like the footsteps and the kids like shouting and you know all the the sounds of the house do you, you know at home do you meditate at home i meditate in my closet at home <laughs> like if you could see it it's like i hope it's a bigger big closet and not a tiny closet. it's yeah it's not like super tiny but it's not it's not enormous either you know but it's just it's a space where i can shut the door and like get in there and just like feel like cuz i'm just trying to find some right. kind of sanctuary where i can get into a concentrated space but uh, I, you know, I can't, and like, even if, even if the kids aren't home, even if my wife has them out and I'm sitting in there, unless it's very early in the morning or very late at night. And even then I live in Los Angeles. So you'll be in there and it'll be like a police helicopter, like thwumping over my head. And I'm just like, Oh, for God's sakes, you know, like, <laughs> so, you know, it's right, like, like, I'm not in silence is my point. Like silence is yeah. so, so elusive. I'm just, I'm drowning in ocean waves just to like, you know, just to block out the, the noises of the, I- for whatever reasons, we have not chosen lives that you know that 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 lead easily to that kind of silence or uh, you know whatever meditative state. I mean, there's people who do do that, but for whatever reasons, you know, obviously you and I haven't chosen that, so we have to find that in some other way. I mean, there's a great you know this um, book by Twyla Tharp. I think it's called The Creative Habit or something. I, I, I'm not sure I have the title right, but it's a book where she writes about her rituals yeah. of 
of moving into a crypt. So it's it's a it's a crucial book. It's an it's an amazing amazing book. And um, yeah, I think artists more or less discover this one way or another, and they just try to make that space. Um, but what I was going to say also about meditating is that um, you know, of course, I, the minute I sit down to start meditating, I I'm, my head is filled with everything, and it's 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 terrifying and horrible and frustrating and um and also great but uh, and and, rep- fact, and repetitive it's the same shit yeah. almost every day <laughs> right, right right no absolutely i mean i i'm i'm the yeah my cons- my concerns and worries are immensely boring but the but the the um the thing i was going to say is that what's nice about poems is that i find it generally speaking easier to not do something if you replace it with doing something else so so usually if i'm trying not to do something just saying to myself don't do it don't do it don't do it is almost like it just makes it more likely that i'm going to do it right but but if i replace the not doing with something that is a different kind of doing that is that i can feel better about or just just is just a different thing then that somehow just makes it easier not to do the first thing. So, so instead of just sitting in my room being like, I need silence, I need silence, I need silence, and hearing every single police helicopter or, you know, whatever, echoing child's cry or whatever it is that's going on, you know, that instead of the poems themselves push back against that, push back against that noise with a kind of silence. And in the book I write about this great Wallace Stevens essay, The Noble Rider and the Sound of Words, where he talks about the pressure of reality. That's what we're talking about now. Yeah. He calls it the pressure of reality. And it's informa- it comes in information coming at us. And that we have to push back using our imaginations. And, and he says it's a kind of violence in a way that you have to push back against it. You know, and, and whether you do that through medita- meditation or through writing prose or through writing poems or through exercise or through something else there, you know, we need these spaces in our, in our lives. I think on a daily basis, you know, at least yeah, um, to survive, to survive. And it doesn't mean not, I mean, the last thing we need to worry about is not being attentive enough to the horrors and, and information of this world. I think, I think the, the, what we need to worry about is being so uh, decimated by all that stuff that we don't actually, we were just, we were so enervated. We can't even do anything about it. Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. what's more likely than not, not knowing is the not, you know, and uh, I mean, people spend all day on Twitter freaking out. And then at the end of the day, it's like, well, what have you done? I have, it? I have no idea what you're talking about, by the way, this is a, uh... And you're talking to somebody who's on Twitter constantly. <laughs> I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> no, me too. Me too. But what I, yeah, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. But that, that feeling of, you know, you, you with your, your fellow, uh, you know, fellow freaker adders have just, have just talked to each other about how terrible X or Y Z thing is. But like, what have we actually done to, to try to, you know, mitigate it or make it better? And I think, I think we need to make sure we cultivate that strength in ourselves and the only way we can do that is by pressing back a little bit. Yeah, I know. It's funny because like one of the things that I, I notice when you talk about the pressure of reality is that if I'm taking time to meditate or I'm taking time to read, which, you know, there's there's a there's definite through line between those two activities, or if I'm taking time to exercise, like any kind of self-care uh, or just time for me, I will often feel within that experience this pressure of 
oh, you know, I, I should be with the kids. This is somehow selfish. Mm-hmm. I'm, you know, what am I doing? I got I got work to do. And, you know, all that stuff just sort of like bubbling beneath the surface. And um, it, it seems to always be there, like or, or 99% of the time, all, you know, it's there. And at the same time, I justify it to myself as if you don't do this stuff, at least for me, the way that I'm wired, like if I don't take a few minutes every day, to sort of oxygenate myself. Like, how can you possibly, like you say, be effective in doing anything about the injustices of the world? Or how could you possibly be, um, you know, the most, uh, uh, the best parent you could possibly be or the best partner or spouse, you know, like, I don't know. It's, it's like trying to find that balance between like daddy needs to go sit in his closet for an hour (laughs) 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 and like, you know, I'm, and and like, I'm actually doing this so that I can be a better dad to you, you know, because there is a fine line. You can wind up using things like meditation or books as a way of sort of escaping reality or like, like where does it sort of bleed? Yeah. Where does it bleed? Where does it bleed into selfishness? You know, that's like always a question on my mind. I I don't know. I mean, I think that, you know, you know, when you have young kids, probably the line where it would become selfish is pretty far off in the, in the distance. Let's hope. <laughs> you know, Let's you're, hope. You're just, I mean, I think you're just trying to survive, but, 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 but I mean, I, I'm sort of interested in how this is, what this has to do with art and making art and the imagination, because I mean, I think we can agree pretty much anybody can agree that, you know, some amount of self care is, is necessary to, to, you know, just be a decent person, not be, not be a miserable jerk in your marriage or in your family life or your job or whatever. But like, but I think that, you know, we were, we started out talking about politics and poetry and there's a lot of, and literature in general, and I'm sure you have observed this, but just our, our literature and our culture and our artistic culture right now are just suffused with politics, you know, all the time. It seems like everywhere you turn, like everything is, is about our political situation. And, and, and I can understand that. I mean, I myself am obsessed, but I also think that this idea that, you know, this guy who's president now, he's like a vampire feeds off our attention. Mm-hmm. You know, that's really, that's really what makes him powerful is our attention. And I sometimes feel like we're just giving him more and more and more of it. And, and I want to, in my, in my own imaginative life, uh, deprive him of, of a certain space inside myself. And I think if we all did that a little more, like maybe he would start to slightly weaken because we'd be, we would be free. It would be, it's also, and, I also, it's also, for, no, go ahead. I was just going to say, it's also nice to not name him. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like Voldemort. Yeah. 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 I don't know. I mean, I'm not, you know, whatever on social media, I'll write his name, but I, just, I don't, right now I just don't feel like saying it. I understand. I understand. And you know, it makes me think too, like whatever socioeconomic or cultural, you know, whatever the, whatever the combination of factors that led to his rise, uh, in this country, um, you know, especially, um, the support that he garners among his hardcore base, like maybe like the response or, or like, I think maybe you're, you're, this is something that you're sort of alluding to is that not all responses to that set of circumstances have to be political. Like maybe there are different ways, maybe there are different ways to respond, like artistically, uh, rather than addressing it in political terms. Like maybe there's a way to address it, uh, spiritually. Maybe there's a way to address it. Do do you know, do you understand what I'm saying? 
I don't yeah, know. I do, and I no, of course I do. Of course I understand what you're saying, and I like. Don't get me wrong. I mean, I'm I'm all. I mean, I mean, people want to write political art that or make political art that directly engages with social issues. I mean, I'm. I mean, not that it matters what I think, but like I am fully in support of that, and I'm very interested in a lot of that work. It's not that I think art shouldn't be political. It'd be ridiculous, but but I do. There's a part of me that just thinks, ugh. Can't we just liberate ourselves sometimes from the the hegemony of this of this? I, I mean, you know, it's it's it's. I guess in a way, politics has become more and more indistinguishable for me from sports or from entertainment. I mean, there's a reason why you know we're all obsessed with the reality show aspects of of Trump's White House. You know, and we're like. Who's in and who's out and who's he like and who's he doesn't? You know, it's like it's a form of entertainment in a way. It's I mean, a, a horrified form. Yeah. But you know, it's like watching real. I call it like the real, the real house fascists of the White House. You know? <laughs> right. <laughs> but like, it's like you know we're like you know we're like watching these guys you know or and gals you know like like you know infight or whatever. Meanwhile, they're you know just pillaging and and destroying and God knows what else they're doing. So. You know, so I, I mean, I think, and and it's true. Like, I don't know if you're a sports fan or not, but I mean, I grew up watching all kinds of sports and playing sports and everything. And I, and sometimes I'm like, I, I, I listen to these podcasts about basketball, and the entire thing is about like who, you know, somebody get like the other person on the team, and and are they this and the coach that? And so I'm like, what about the game itself? Like, I would like, did, did they even play the games anymore? Right. Or is it just, they just, is this just a soap opera? It's like Ky- know, so. Ky- Kyrie and LeBron. I mean, that's like the reality television drama oh of the sporting God. world. It's like the hundreds of hours have been devoted to analyzing those guys, like what their, what their stupid relationship is. It's like, ugh. yeah. So anyway, so, so I mean, not to get off topic, but if we even have a topic, but like, but I just, I just, I'm like, you know, I am like, wait a minute, hold on, hold on, hold on. Let's, just try to think in a different way and for me poems being in poems reading a poem whether it's by ashbury or by you know anyone else you know by an ancient chinese poet or one of my peers or something it's just it puts me in a different space and a free space in relation to language and thinking and suddenly i feel like i feel this immense relief actually so let's i I I want to I want to ask you about uh, your writing ritual because you t- you've talked a little bit about your reading ritual um, and how you can you know unplug a bit from the noise of the world and find silence inside of a poem, which I think is a great way to think about it. But if you're sitting down to write poems, um, and th- it seems like it would be different than than writing prose. Like, is there a difference? Like, you've written mm-hmm. books of poetry. You've now written a book of prose. Like. I feel like a book of prose, there's a certain discipline and it's a, it's like a yeah. more time intensive, whereas like poem, a poem might strike you and you can sit down and at least, you know, get a, get a draft down in, in one shot. Right. For sure. You can do that. I, and, and yes, they are in my experience, my experience, they're very different. Um, the grinding focus that prose requires is just fundamentally different i think i mean you you know you got to have your ass in the chair for hours and hours and hours or or you're just not gonna write enough words to even get a draft done whereas you know for prose whereas for poems i think that there's it's really funny because i'm actually a very uh distractible person i'm the kind of person who's like I, i i can't focus or concentrate it's really really hard for me and that's presented a lot of problems in my life 
in different ways. But when it comes to poems, it's actually kind of an advantage because it's if you're reading one thing and you have a little stray thought and then you get up and you look at some, you know, you look at your window and you see something else or maybe you hear a stray conversation or whatever, that kind of mindset of being more open, like almost being kind of like uh, an open window through which things are drifting that's sort of more of a mindset for poems and, and, but I don't think you can write, it's very, very difficult to write good prose with that mindset. You, I, I just think you got to lock it down and block out some things and really focus on what it is you're talking about and, and, and grind it out and push the thought or the, or whatever it is to its conclusion. Yeah. The only, see if there's really anything there. the only one, the only time I've ever really heard it convincingly described to me where a prose writer was, operating in a, in a similar mode to the one you just, uh, just talked about was, um, it's a Mark Lehner. Like he wrote my, uh, mm. my cousin, my gastroenterologist. And I remember reading an interview with him where he was talking about how he could not write unless he was like at the kitchen table with like the TV on and the radio on at the same time. <laughs> and he's like pulling from these things. I'm like responding yeah. to me, like to media as he writes. And I'm like, wow, that seems like an ingenious kind of like, I mean, if you, if you're actually intentionally, setting yourself up to create within that framework. But, you know, it's easy. But I think you'd have to have a kind of mind that was like, that was like really partition, you know, like somehow you could like take that in and then there'd be another part of your mind that was very analytical in relation to another, like that would be, I think you'd have to have a certain kind of like, you know, like really cool brain to do that. I mean, I, I, I don't, I don't have that kind of brain. I'm, I'm, I have one like really cluttered, room <laughs> that's my brain you know just like where there's like it's a mess in there and so i can't and once something comes in it's like i got it's very hard for me to keep it from migrating to some other place so so i but i mean i've written different ways i mean there have been times when i have gone you know i like go out in public or just sit in a coffee shop and just open myself up to whatever you know maybe i got a book in front of me and i'm listening to conversations and hearing the music and just thinking stray thoughts or whatever and then there's other times when i get you know, try to get really focused and in a really quiet space and see what language comes up in there, almost something close to when you were describing meditating. Other times I'm almost like collecting language and then later putting it together to see, you know, sort of almost like scrabbling through it to see if there's anything in there, you know, that's, that's, that, that provokes a thought or an idea. And it's, yeah, I, I have lots of different approaches depending. It also just depends a lot on the cir circumstances of my life. You know, whether, whether I'm, you know, in the past I might have had, stretches of time where I was able to be by myself and there was a lot of quiet time or whatever. And now of course I'm not in that situation. So I've had to adapt. So, sure. and, and just short, short of verse of time. So just to, uh, just to differentiate between the work that you did, um, or the work that you do as a poet and the work that you did on, on why poetry, uh, for listeners, you know, who might be wondering, you know, like I, when you, when you talk about writing poetry, you know, you, you just went through it. Like it's a, it's a bit of a looser process and it, you know, you're doing, you're doing it in different ways, you know, and when it comes to writing prose, like, did you have a set schedule? Did you get up in the morning first thing and, you know, try to get a word count every day? Uh, what did it, what did it look like by comparison? I did it different ways and I made Every, I would venture to say basically every single mistake you can make as a prose writer. I mean, I really, I really just did everything wrong all the time. But like I would say at some point I realized that I had to just block out a chunk of hours where, where just it was on my calendar, you know, like, you know, my little I Apple iCalendar, whatever it is like, and, you know, it was just a, 
period of time when I wasn't going to be doing anything else and I would just put my ass in my chair and I would open up my computer and I'd be like, okay, 500 words or a thousand words, it's coming out. I'm, I'm getting it. And I can write pretty fast. So if I set myself a word count, usually I could do it. I mean, of course, a lot of it was junk and I would have to go back and be rewritten. But I realized at some point, if I were going to go back and do it, so I tried a lot of different things. But in the end, that was sort of what worked for me. It's when I had to re- reinvent the wheel. You probably could have told me that. If I, if I had known you at the beginning of this process, you'd be like, dude, you have to block out a few hours and, and just put your ass in the chair and do it. And I'd be like, oh, okay. But I had to, <laughs> I had to waste, you know, two years figuring that out myself. But like, so, so you know, the, the, at some point, and actually at some point I did a, did a smart thing, um, which was uh, I, had a, I have a friend who was also working on a project and we, we and I had done this before with poems, but we agreed to email each other each day 500 words, um, and we would just we, every single day we had to just email our email these 500 words to each other, and then all we were allowed to say to each other was thank you for sending this. You know, it wasn't like workshopping or like commenting or whatever. So we were. It wasn't about that. It was just. It was just this sort of uh, like you know obligation that had to be fulfilled. And I did that for a month, and that wrote a you know a goodly chunk of the. Of, of a part that I was really struggling with at that point. So, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it was it was grindy in that way, but I, I got more used to it. I, another thing I learned about writing, too, is like, and I don't know if you've had this experience, is that you get in shape in a way. Yeah. So once you've been doing it for a few months, you're like, you you, you, you can, it's almost, it's a physical thing. You know, you can actually sit there and concentrate for longer. Um, That's another thing I didn't know. Yeah, no, no, and like, and and like, and the and the and vice versa. Like, you fall out of it. Like, I've been out of it right. for a little while now, and like, I'm like, wow, I'm out of shape. Like, I, you get out of the rhythm. You know, I'm very, for me at least, prose writing, it's a it's a very rhythmic existence, and like, for me to yeah. be doing it well, I almost need to be doing it every day or or just about every day, um, to to keep it up. Yeah, and I mean, you you know, and and and. Because I wasn't, because it wasn't something I had done a lot of. I mean, I've written a lot of shorter essays, but it was. I mean, I, I, I think another thing that would have been the right thing to do, which I remember reading. I think Jennifer Egan. I read an interview with her where she said she does this. I think that's who it was, but it's like she just writes through the draft really fast first, and doesn't go back and rewrite anything the first time through, and then goes back and rewrites. And if I had done that. I think I probably could have saved myself two years of work because I would continually go back. I'd write something, a chapter or half a chapter, and then I'd, the next day I'd open the document and go back and start working on it again. So I was always going back to the beginning, and it just, first of all, was made, made it very hard to make any forward progress, but also I might end up rewriting and rewriting and rewriting something that in the end I didn't even include in the book. Yeah. And that happens so many times to me. So that was like a mistake I made. That, that I think that probably had I talked to you or someone else who's done this a few times, you would have probably counseled me not to do that or some or to be careful at least, you know, in doing that. And I just didn't have that kind of advice. Yeah, in my I, life. I'm the same way, though. Like, I, I'm a person who will just reread the stuff that I've already written and kind of edit as I go. I've talked to people on the show who do it that way. It's definitely slower. And I think one of the one of the things is that, you know, you fall, you can fall into the trap of perfectionism. And I think you can sometimes you can ruin a piece of writing by making it overwrought. You can sit there and noodle with it to death until finally the the finished product is is worse than what you had in like draft two, you know, or draft absolutely, one. Absolutely, absolutely. And there 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 were, 
Yeah, and and that just and there were times when I would just I mean, maybe this isn't so bad, but there were times when I would write something, I would almost like make it disappear. I'd write it so many times that it would go away. There was like, like there was nothing there anymore. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like, like it was, it's, 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 it was a weird thing. And, and maybe that's because there wasn't really anything there. And I was kidding myself, but maybe I also had the experience. I mean, this is a little bit of a different project for me because I said at some point to somebody that it was like writing a dissertation, but without a dissertation advisor and not that it came out like it's not a dissertation. It's not a scholarly work, but it, it, it involved a lot of, I had a, I had these ideas about poetry where I was like, textbooks, most poetry textbooks are stupid. And I was like, well, I guess I got to go read them and figure out if that's really true. Because what <laughs> if it's not true? And I'm saying that, you know, so or like modern poetry is actually more direct than it's said to be. I was like, oh, OK, well, I guess now I got to go read all that stuff, you know, and really look at it and see if that's really true or if that's just some vague impression that. So, so there was a lot of, and often I would write my way through those ideas and then I would get to the end and I would have written 20,000 words about poetry textbooks. And I was like, this is so boring. <laughs> I cannot have this in my book. And so and there's a point I think in my, in the book where I just say, basically, trust me, these things are, these things don't help. These poetry textbooks don't help. And that's, that's, there's 20,000 words behind that, you know, of like me having figured it out. To, so, to finally, yeah. And finally like distilled it down to like a line. <laughs> Well, I think you just realize you're like, this is just not, I mean, I guess maybe there's something like that with not, I've heard novels say like, oh, they have to like know their character or something. So they'll write all this stuff that doesn't end up in the book. Is that, is that true? I don't It can, it can be. I mean, and I think too, like for me in my experience anyway, like usually the way that it works is that there's a, a very lengthy process of what I call throat clearing, where I, I write like a big chunk uh, at the beginning of the book that I wind up lopping off and you, you realize where the thing starts. It's like closer to the middle, you know? Sure. Um, well, there's this truism about poems that, you know, in poetry workshops and it's incredibly annoying, but also so often true that, that, that if you just knock off the first couple of lines or even the first stanza of the poem, you know, it's, it really begins, you know, further down the page. And it's so irritating when people say that because it's one of those like workshoppy right. things to say. But what's all the more irritating about it is, is how often it's true. <laughs> right. 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 <laughs> yeah. Because, because it's, it does take, it's like, I, I joke with my students about this sometimes. I'm like, it's like the Flintstones, you know, when Fred is like doing that thing with his feet before the, before the, before his like dino car goes or whatever. That, right. That car he has. Remember that? Yeah. So it's like that's kind of like with writing. You got to like do that thing with your feet. You know, I'm doing something with my hands right now that that is Fred Finstow's feet with my hands. <laughs> <laughs> so I wanna, I wanna, you get, I want you to bear with me because I'm gonna draw some, I'm gonna draw some sure. lines from disparate um, locations and then try to bring it all around into a uh, succinct question. But all right, I'm ready. Yeah. So we've talked about um, the silence inside of a. Um, a poem, you know, especially a poem that's really working on you. And, you know, I think a poem that the, the author has, um, has written from a deep place, you know, and we've talked about trying to use poetry and to find silence in a very noisy world. Uh, you are obviously up in the Bay area, you live in Oakland and that's sort of like, you know, near the epicenter of, uh, technology for the world. You know, that's where, that's like the fountainhead of technology. And um, we've talked about poetry and music, which I suppose is somewhat related. But the question that I'm interested in hearing you respond to is 
how you feel about the intersection of poetry and technology, like even as like a distribution mechanism, um, you know, because poetry to me of all the literary forms, I, I think it, you know, it can play well on a phone screen, you know, like you can, I can read and enjoy a poem online probably more easily than I can like a short story or a long form piece of nonfiction. And then the other thing that is of interest to me, and I, I always think back to this conversation I had at a bar, like this is like probably 10 years ago. And I was out here in Los Angeles uh, and I was with some friends, like a buddy of mine named Milo Martin, who's a poet, my buddy, Rich Ferguson, who's been on the show as a poet. Mm. And I remember saying to them, I was like, guys, I was like, guys, I just had an, I, I think I just saw the future. Like eventually, you know, people are going to be able to like push a button and there's going to be like a little hologram of a poet like performing their poem for you on, on like your desk, you know? And I think that there is some value, especially for people who are having trouble accessing poetry in hearing it read by the poet herself or himself. And now as we kind of like bend the curve into this new world with uh, like virtual and augmented reality, you know, I could, I can see it being a thing where like, you're going to be able to hold up your smartphone uh, to the cover of a book of poetry and like the poet is going to like pop up holographically on your desk and like recite a poem to you. Like, uh, so oh my God, that's a, that's a long, that's a, that's a long winded way of saying like, how do you feel about this? Like, do you you're cracking me up? Cause I know so many poets and I'm like, these are not people I want in my house. Like <laughs> It's like the idea that I would pick up a book of poems and suddenly there'd be a little hologram of that, that person in my, in my, in my home is, is, is terrifying. but uh, not always, but you know, but uh, no, I, I think it's kind of, it's an interesting idea. I mean, I, I don't, I, I mean, I love that you've had that thought. That's, that's, um, why, why limited to poets, I guess. But, but the, um, I mean, I, it's Brad, it's probably not going to come as a surprise to you that I have some mixed feelings about the issue of poetry and technology. Sure. I, I, um, on the one hand, it is absolutely undeniably the fact that the, the distribution of poetry has become so much easier with all this technology we have. And I, and I, so many more people can read something I publish, which appears online. I mean, and I get immediate responses and I, I know that so many more people are reading it than would read it if it were only in a book or in a, in a printed journal. So, so like I, as a, as an artist, I feel good about it because I feel like it's, 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 you know, and I don't have the same kinds of mixed feelings that maybe about that, than maybe a musician would have because I never was getting paid any significant amount of money for my poems. <laughs> right. It's not like, you know, it's not like I was making a living off these poems and somehow it got to be free. It's like, you know, it's, it's, it's different for me than it is for, you know, somebody who makes music and used to make money off records. Well, no, now, it, I, I, I don't mean to interrupt, but it's funny that you say that because I remember like around 2008, 2009, 2010, having conversations with Pete, like friends of mine who, who, you know, were not in literature in any capacity and I, and they work in like real estate or they work in tech or whatever. And I was like, you know how the economy is now? I was like, this is how it always is for writers. <laughs> I was like, right. I was like nothing, well, I, nothing's changed. Nothing's changed. This is just, this is baseline right here. Well, I call it like, uh, I mean, this isn't a particularly felicitous phrase, but I say it's like the poet, poetification of, of fiction because, you know, it used to be like this, this, you know, poets always assumed that they weren't going to make any money off their poems and they always knew they had to make money some other way. And that's why poets are actually pretty great at surviving 
in different economies, and, and whether it's by teaching, but also by in so many other ways. But fiction writers were told that they could make money off their novels or that whatever, like, and so they that that you know they maybe were disappointed to discover many of them who wrote more literary work that they often couldn't do that. And so, so now they're just like, you know, the, the fiction writers I know, most of them are more or less like poets, you know, in the way that they operate, which I probably is a good thing for the art actually. Well, and you, and you write about this in the book, you know, you're, you're not somebody who uh, sits around fearing for the death of poetry. You know, I think you're pretty bullish on its, on its survival capabilities. I'm more worried about the world than I am about poetry. I mean, but, 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 but I mean, you know, but getting back to what you, you asked me about technology and poetry, I mean, I don't, so, so I have, I feel good about the, the, the distribution of it, but I do feel, um, that when this circles back to something that we, we talked about a lot, um, over the past hour, you know, that, that there is something about just reading a poem in the same you know, using the same technology that you do to experience, you know, everything else you experience that is a, that I think can take away from its impact. And I'm not going to shake my finger at people who read their poems on screens. I do it myself, but I'm, but I do want to say that there is a, such a different feeling about the old technology of a book, especially when it comes to poems. And I think it's related to this idea of silence that's so embedded in the nature of poetry itself. You know, and I just, I personally just find it often much less of a, of a, of a meaningful experience to read a poem on the screen. Um, and, and I don't, that's just sort of my own personal experience. I don't have a problem with somebody else doing it, but I just, I just, I'm, I'm surrounded, you know, right now in this room by my books and I, I, you know, I, I like it when I'm, I'm not looking at a screen and I'm looking into a book. When there's no, there's no like capacity for lateral movement. You can't like suddenly like get distracted and go to ESPN.com or, or or even like look up, you know, like, like, like look up something about the poet, right? You know, it's natural. It's like you're reading a poem and you're like, they, they say something or that you read their poem. You're like, Oh, I'm curious. Like, where does this person live? Are they, what are they like? Are they the, and so immediately, boom, you're like into some kind of wormhole of like, you know, information. And it's like, it's like, and then you're not reading the poems you're reading, you're reading about their life or some article, some interview they did or some article or review or whatever. And like, and it's like, it's just, then you're back in that same kind of information that we're always into. And, and I just, I just, that's why for me, I just, I need the books and I need to just go out with a book without my computer or phone or anything. And just, you know, that's so, so I guess that's, that's just another reaction I have to it. But, but uh, I mean, it's, it's. It is what it is, you know. It's not like people are going to be stop going to stop using screens anytime soon. So no, I don't. I, <laughs> I and I remain uh, I remain convinced that my holographic augmented reality poetry on your desk, like poets doing spoken word on your desk, like that's coming. It's coming. I feel I'd it. I'd like to apologize in advance, Brad, for when I show up as a hologram on your or hologram or hologram on your desk. <laughs> you know, like I like. You know, that's, yeah, of course. Uh, maybe maybe I'll be dressed like Princess Leia at least. So, but the white robe. Yeah, yeah. Well, but before I let you go, I want to talk about uh, publishing in poetry because obviously, getting somebody to publish a collection of your poems is uh, a big challenge. Maybe bigger than uh, getting them to publish a work of nonfiction or a work of fiction. It, it seems to be the case, you know, because who? Because there's not a lot of money in it. Yeah. And I also want to hear you talk a little bit about the work that you've done editorially. Like, uh, you, you do you still edit for Wave Books? 
Yeah, yeah, I'm an editor. I'm I'm one of the, you know, there's there's a few of us now who edit, uh, and I'm an editor at large, which basically means that I, you know, do, I do do projects that come up. I work with specific authors and, and involved, but I'm not involved in the day to day operations of do, the of the press. Do you work with uh, Michael Earl Craig? Because I think he's on that imprint, and yes. he's he's one of my favorite poets. I love him. So. Earl and I went to graduate school together at UMass Amherst. Um, oh. So I've known him for you know decades, and he's a close friend. And and he he published his first few books with a, a, a great press called Fence Books. Um, and then he came over to Wave, and and so I, yeah, I'm his editor at Wave. Oh um, no shit! So we're super close friends. Oh, okay, yeah. what a small world. Yeah, like I had him on the show, and I just uh, I adore his poetry. I think he's oh, like, he's great. He's great. There's like a real humor in it, and like you know, but you're never quite sure. You know, like was and that he came out like that too? You know, in grad school, he was writing poems that 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 he he's just one of those rare people who was just doing it more or less from the beginning. And I remember being in a workshop with him and being like, shit. This is like the real stuff. Right. And I, it's one of those guys, you know, I have, I still have all the poems that he brought into class, like in, you know, in an inner drawer somewhere. I used to keep them because they were so good. Huh. You know, just right, um, right out of the box. He had a, he had a very funny line in one of his early poems where he said, uh, um, you know, after that famous Robert Frost poem, you know, my little horse must think it queer to stop without a farmhouse near, you know, that's that Robert Frost poem. But uh, he, uh, Earl wrote, uh, my little horse must think it queer. Well, who cares what he thinks? He's just a horse. <laughs> <laughs> thinking, okay, wait a minute. Now, now, now we're now we're onto something. But, uh, but yeah, <laughs> but uh, no, I uh, yeah. So I I I'm an editor at Wave, and um, um, I actually edited. Um, I had a great, good fortune and pleasure of editing uh, this year's. Pulitzer Prize winning book in poetry, Tahimba Jess's book, Olio. Uh, it's won the Pulitzer Prize. Yeah, I edited that book at Wave, which was super exciting and a shock when it won the Pulitzer. That well, was, congratulations. Was, but it was cool to be on the other end of that. Well, congratulations to Tahimba, who's, who's incredible. But I mean, it was really cool to be on the other end of that, like kind of like the editing end of it. You know, yeah. Experience it from that perspective. So, yeah, so I've been editing a long time and and Wave is, is you know, a big part of my life and and yeah, the publishing, I mean, the, you know, the publishing world for poetry changed around 2000 in the way that Indie Rock had changed maybe a decade or 15 years earlier, where suddenly there was this explosion of new, of new publishing ventures and independent presses. And part of that had to do with, you know, just this immense quality of work that wasn't getting published. And part of it had to do with technology, um, which is the same thing was true for music. You know, suddenly it was easier to record music and to make records. Well, the same thing happened for making books too, um, and distributing them because of the internet and various desktop publishing uh, programs. So, so that that I was kind of started working in publishing, independent publishing around that time, around 1999, 2000, and it's yeah, I've been doing it ever since. And it's 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 a it's a it's an amazing world to be in, and I've met you know, all my, all my great friends through it. And yeah, it's It's cool. It's just a lot of people you have on your program are people who I've either met or heard of, you know, through publishing and stuff. So what about, what about somebody who's out there who might be working on putting together their first collection? Uh, I think everybody always is like, well, you know, I'll send a poem to the New Yorker or I'll try to get a big press to somehow be, you know, pluck my collection out of the pile and decide that it's going to be one of the few that they publish. And, 
Um, like, do you have any advice for maybe younger poets or poets who have, you know, haven't published yet, but, but want to, like, are they better off publishing themselves or creating their own small press? Like, do you have feelings on that? Um, I think, you know, if you're particularly motivated to create your own small press or start a reading series or do something that's like generative in your community, I would say, you know, if that's the kind of person you are, I would say do it because it's, it's fun and leads you to other cool people. But there are lots of people who just aren't, that's like not their thing. They wouldn't, they just don't want to be on that organizational kind of mode or something. So, um, they, uh, I would say that to more like to find the people who are doing those things in your community and start to get to know them and see if you have, if, if what they're doing in terms of their writing and, and, and who they're publishing and who they're hanging out with, you know, you feel some sympathy with and just, and just get out of your isolated space, but not by sending a poem to the New Yorker or sending your manuscript to, you know, FSG or something like that. I mean, it's fine if you do that. It's, you know, maybe you'll get lucky, but, but more likely you'll find your people where you are. And there's so many poets and so much good poetry getting made all over the country and every, I mean, I've been so many, so many little cities and towns and you got to find, but you got to find your people either where you are or somewhere else and, um, and start to kind of get to know them and share your work with them and learn from them and see what they're reading and see who they know and see who their mentors are. And, and that is the way always that then leads to, to other opportunities and an understanding of where you fit into the literary culture. Cause I mean, there's just so many different ways to do it, but when you don't know anything about it, it can just seem so overwhelming. So I usually just think, find, find your people, um, get out, get out there and find your people and get, get, get with them and then see what happens. Get with them in person or online or, or yeah, yeah. But I would even say maybe try in person, you know, there's like so there's reading series, there's, presses there's 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 a there's events there's things happening and 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 almost everywhere i mean you know obviously there are people who are in real isolated or rural areas or something but like like michael like michael earl craig who's out shooing (laughs) shooing horses in montana (laughs) but he's in livingston which is uh you know and it's like that said there actually is a community of writers and people out there and so um yeah but i mean it's you know you'd be surprised i guess as a poet to find who's who's around and and, you know, the good thing about poets is they love to sit around and shoot the shit and hand each other books and you know, have a drink or a cup of coffee or whatever and talk about it all. And, and, and that's, I think for me, that's poetry led me to my friendships and to my, to my whole world as a, as a writer and, and, and having that, it not only helped me with my actual making of the work and also with my publishing of it, but it helped me with my life because I found my, my people that way and so i i i think i've just seen that helping over over and over again i mean if you're in a place like la i mean it's lousy with poets in la yeah you know you got chuan on and and he's got a whole scene and yeah, rich yeah. and guys you know so you know that so so yeah that's for younger poets that's my main piece of advice rather than just sending your work out into the void or something like that or just to the new yorker or whatever like just find something that's around you and get going that way well, Matthew, I uh, I have I have such uh, I've so enjoyed talking with you, and uh, I want to congratulate you on this book because I think it does a service uh, to the literary community, but also to um, you know a reading community that might be interested in poetry, but um, could use a little help in maybe understanding its value. And uh, I know it wasn't an easy book for you to write, but I uh, so I so I congratulate you doubly 
for having the uh, the stamina to finish it. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Brad. Thanks for everything you do too, and good luck with your own your own work and your writing and everything and life. All right, ladies and gentlemen, there you go. That's Matthew Zapruder. His new book is called Why Poetry. It's available now from Echo. You can find him online at matthewzapruder.com. He's on Facebook. His Twitter handle is at Matthew Zapruder. Why Poetry, available now from Echo. Get your copy. Thanks to Kill Rockstars for the music. As always, if you want more info, go to killrockstars.com. This program, one more time, is listener-supported. If you want to support the program, you can do that at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Don't forget to get the Other People app. There's an official app. It's free. Everything's free. All episodes are free. The app is free. Get the app wherever you get your apps. It's the best way to listen. If you want to email me, the address is letters at otherppl.com. Let me know what you think. Tell me a story. Offer your thoughts. Weigh in. It's all right. I'll, go, I'll get to Ireland eventually. We'll figure it out. The question is, where do I go now in the fall? Like, if we book in the fall, or do we book it around the holidays? Probably the holidays. question is where. Do we take the kids? I guess we do. Fuck! Not that I don't want to go on a trip with my kids, but it's not the same. That was, that was sort of the beauty of it. We'll see. Got to work out the logistics. the logistics you should hear me on a customer service call with American Airlines by the way I have written masterpieces in customer service phone calls with American Airlines like if I like you know how like all human beings contain multitudes we all have the capacity for great good and great evil do you know what I'm saying you know that whole theory if there's like an Adolf Hitler somewhere in my uh, DNA, if there's the capacity for great evil, for some sort of diabolical genius somewhere within my uh, being, it is triggered in customer service phone calls with American Airlines. You do not want to face off with me in one of those phone calls. I am relentless. I am unafraid. I'm willing to go to great extremes to bend you to my will. So, we'll see. Just going to have to get through next week trying not to imagine where I should be. Now it'll give me something to look forward to. It's nice to have a trip to look forward to. So now I just got to book another trip and have that to look forward to. That'll be the way that it goes. Hope you guys are doing well. Dog days of summer, it's almost over. Let's get to the fall. (laughs) 